Seems like one of those mornings where I should quote my pastor growing up, who you say, boy, if you can't preach after that, something's wrong with you. <laughs> it is so good to sing together. And I continually rejoice in the way that God has graced us to be a singing congregation. You are not observers. You are not an audience. We have an audience of one to whom we sing week by week. And I am thankful that the choir shows up every week. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles and you're not familiar with how to get around it, uh, Philippians 2 will be on page 980 of that Bible. And in just a, we're going to read uh, the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes these words. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this, in my, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you now, asking you to teach us. Father, I pray by your Spirit you would open our eyes to the truth in this text to its implications for our lives, to the beauty and glory and wonder of our Savior. I pray, Father, as a result of your work through your Spirit, that not one knee left within the sound of my voice will be left unbowing to the King of kings and Lord of lords. I pray that you would save those who don't know you, would you open their eyes today? 
you correct and encourage and strengthen your church today? Be glorified now, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the realities of the Christian life is that we are in ongoing warfare, spiritual warfare. The Bible teaches us that the devil and demons are not mere representations of evil. These are not metaphors. These are real, evil, spiritual beings. It's the devil who first tempts Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's the devil who tempts Jesus in the wilderness, though where he had succeeded with Eve, he fails with Jesus. During Jesus' ministry, he casts out many demons from those who have been possessed, who've been overtaken by them. It's the devil who enters Judas, leads him to betray Jesus, hand him over to the authorities, which leads to Jesus' crucifixion. And the devil and demon and demonic forces oppose Christ's church today, us. So that Paul writes elsewhere of this reality that we ought to be ready for it. In Ephesians 6, he writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And certainly one of the schemes of the devil is the world's attack on the church. Oppression, persecution, opposition, the hating of the gospel, the seeking to silence those who would preach truth, and on and on. But the devil's attack on the church is much more sophisticated than merely having the world attack from the outside. You see, he wants the church to erode from the inside. He would love it if nobody actually had to attack us because we were just attacking ourselves. He would love it if we would just shoot our own. He would love it if we, the church would just weaken itself, attack itself through division. In fact, these two go hand in hand. The devil wants us so focused on the world, so focused on the world and its opposition, its evil, that we cannot see the evil of division in the church, that we cannot see the evil of eroding relationships, that we cannot see the evil of silent separation from one another, that we cannot see the evil of corrupting talk about one another. He doesn't want us to see that this matters as much, if not more than, the world's attacks. You see, the devil loves to attack during hardship. Why do you think it is that married couples often fight when they're in financial trouble? Money can't make you fight. Money can't make me fight. Yet the enemy loves. The enemy loves when any trial comes on to have us so focused on the financial crisis, on, on the health crisis, on the trial that we let our guard down and we can be more prone to sin against those we love. We can be more prone to become angry, whether explosive or silent. We can, we can speak in harsh tones, become selfish, demanding. 
It's also why we need to fiercely guard church fellowships when there is opposition against us. If all we do is point at the outside and we never take care of the inside of the church, we will certainly be more vulnerable. It will be like a tree that looks mighty and strong and powerful and has been there decades and decades and decades and yet the inside will have hollowed out from the rot and anything can just blow it over. Our enemy would love that. If our relationships inside the church were strained, weakened, separated, you see, those more than the attacks of the world will actually harm us. If you know your church history, you know this. The opposition of the world has yet to squelch out the church. But division and sin within the church has killed many a local church. You see, last week we talked primarily about the opposition that was coming from the outside. That's what Paul was saying, that that they needed to live a life worthy of the gospel. You remember that? They needed to stand firm and strive for the faith of the gospel and not be frightened by their opponents and do it together. And as it were, as chapter 1 opens up, he's going to pick up this you ought to do it together theme and he's going to land there. And he's going to call us call the church in times of opposition and hardship to unity. Pursue church unity, Paul says, through Christ-like humility. Well, let's think about this. First, let's look at Paul's if. Paul's if. Before he calls for unity, he lays out these four conditional statements in verse 1. And even though we don't see it in the English translation, the word if is at the front of every one of these uh, statements. So I'm going to read verse 1 again, but I'm going to put the if in there as it is. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. He's pleading with them. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, you see, to be in Christ is to be united to Him. The Bible says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world in Him. We are adopted through Christ. We are forgiven and redeemed in Him. We are righteous in God's sight in Him. We have the hope of eternal life in Him. How could you not find encouragement in that? The thing that matters most in the whole world, we find it in Christ. The thing that will never change, the thing that will never shift, it's right there. Doesn't that encourage you? The world just swirls around us, doesn't it? And it's just always changing. And and next year, it'll be a different challenge to the church. And the next year, it'll be a different challenge to the church. And it will spiral, and it will swirl, and it will get darker, and it will get deeper. But this will never change. Isn't that encouraging? To be in Christ. If any comfort from His love. God's love, oh, God's love is not conditioned on our character. It's conditioned on God's character. 
He loves because he loves. Why did he set his love on us? Because he set his love on us. Because of who he is. Not because of who we are. Now, I wouldn't encourage you to get an app where you're swiping left and swiping right and all these things. But I will tell you that if that were the case, whichever direction you swipe to dismiss because somebody's not worthy, that's the way that we ought to be swiped. All right? Just swipe us all away. But he doesn't. And his love, his love isn't fickle like human love. It's steady. It's sure. The psalmist says it endures forever. So that nothing can pry, dear Christian, nothing can pry you out of the loving arms of God. Nothing you do and nothing done to you can pluck you from his hand. Don't you find comfort in that? If there's any comfort in love. If any participation in the Spirit. The word participation here is the word fellowship that we've looked at before. It's that koinonia word. If we have fellowship in the Spirit, the Spirit seals us and dwells within us. The Spirit brings us into fellowship with God. The Spirit brings us into fellowship with the Spirit. If we have any fellowship, any participation, any part with the Spirit, isn't it good to know that wherever you go, God is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? That greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's no circumstance where you're going to come up against, you know, when you're in elementary school, you know, you walk around, you say, my dad can beat up your dad and these kinds of things. If my dad would have ever heard me say that, he probably would have told me, no, I can't. I can't do that. However, better than that, is the one who created all things, who walks into every bit of creation I will ever go into, who knows the beginning, who knows the end from the beginning, who knows the circumstance before I step into it, who is with me, who will be faithful to convict me of sin, who will be faithful to strengthen me for righteousness, who will be faithful to conform me to the image of Christ, the Spirit of God. Do you have any participation in the Spirit of God? And then he says, if any... Affection and sympathy. You see, friends, we were harassed and helpless because of our sin, because of our weakness. And Jesus sees us as harassed and helpless and he has pity on us and he lays down his life for us and he rescues us so that the affection and the sympathy we need he has accomplished in the cross. So you see, when you take all of these phrases together, Paul's not using the word if in a way that means he's uncertain about whether these conditions are true. He's using the word if the same way that some parents use if at the dinner table. If you want dessert, you'll eat your vegetables. The same way some parents speak around on Christmas Eve, right? It's getting later, and the parent looks at the child and says, well, if you want Santa to come and give you presents, 
you'll get on to bed and go to sleep. There's no question in the parent's mind that those conditions are absolutely true. Of course they want the dessert. Of course they want the presents, right? So they're not using if in a kind of, I don't know whether this is true or not. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and of course there is, if there is any comfort in love, and you know that love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, of course, if there is any affection and sympathy, yes, 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 all of these things are true. He says them, and he doesn't say since. If your Bible says since, it's not the since word. Just mark it out and put if, because it is if. It is a conditional word. It's not one of... He knows that it's true, but he's speaking in this conditional way to say, if these things are true, and it should rise up in them that these things are true. And he says it to draw them in, to get them to listen, to get them to come along, to open their hearts and their ears to what he's about to say. And so we move on to Paul's then. Paul's then. What is the then? Well, let's just read it again to remind ourselves, beginning in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, in the, in the original, verses 1 to 4 is a really long sentence, all right, uh, which Paul loves long sentences. He loves, you know, subordinate clauses. He loves all these kinds of things. So it's helpful to have it broken up here, but it reads more like, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, in humility, in humility counting others more significant than yourselves, not looking only to your own interests but to the interests of others. It's just all one kind of con, you know, convoluted long sentence. It all piles up. But notice how he starts. Isn't it interesting how he starts? He says, complete my joy. It's the, only, it's, it's the only command in there. It's the only direct verb. Everything else is subordinate. It doesn't mean everything's about his joy. But what it means is their obedience to this, his, his joy is wrapped up in them. His heart is delighted when they obey. And he is disheartened when they don't. Any parent... If you have an adult child that's out of the house and on their own, you know this kind of joy, don't you? When, you? when you just happen to be talking to them and they talk about praying and asking God for wisdom and decisions, the way they're serving in the church, the way they want to honor Him, doesn't your heart just leap for joy when you hear those things? Can't you just imagine your heart leaping for joy if you hear your children say those things? That's what Paul's heart is doing. He says, complete my joy by, by obeying, doing what you know you ought to do here. And what is it that will produce this parental, complete this parental joy in Paul? It is unity through humility. So the first part of the then is unity here in verse 2. The four conditional statements in verse 1 are matched by four unity phrases in verse 2. 
being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, of one mind. Now, taking all these together, it means that their minds and their hearts and their souls are bound together. Their lives are woven together in Christ in such a way that they can't be separated. You see, Christ has brought them together in the church. Christ is the foundation of their fellowship. Their minds are informed and refined by the words of Christ, so they have the same mind. Their love for one another is patterned after the love that Christ has for them. Remember what Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. You have the same love. Their souls are bound together by the Spirit of Christ. They are soul bound. That's what, that's what that full accord, that's what that literally means. They're soul bound. They're not soulmates in the sense that, you know, you, you see the person across the room and you're like, oh, there's my soulmate, you know. It's not that. We're soulmates because God has brought us together by the Spirit. So we are soulmates. So you just walk into this room and just look around and you say, ah, there's my soulmates. Have the same and be in full accord. This kind of unity is what Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. Four different times in this prayer in John 17 that we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays for unity in in verse 11, 21, 22, and 23, that they may be one, that they may all be one, that they may be one, that they may become perfectly one. This is the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ for His church. You see, we all have different backgrounds, we have different stories, we have different families, we have different careers, we have different gifts, we have different interests, we have different depths of maturity in Christ, but we have the same gospel, we have the same Christ, we have the same Spirit. You see, we who are different have a sameness, a unity in Christ. And what Paul is calling them to do is to pursue the experience of that unity in their local fellowship. How? Through humility. Verses 3 and 4. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now that phrase that leads off verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition, quite frankly, that probably would have stung. Now it's been a few weeks since we've been there, but that's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 1. Go back to chapter 1, look at verse 15 and then verse 17. He's talking about these people who oppose him who are divisive, he says, some indeed, verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now go down to verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of what? Selfish ambition. The same word. And now, Paul, you know, I mean, like, can you, can you hear, the, can you see them listening to this letter? They're sitting there, 
And someone is reading the letter for them, and they read the first part, and they're like, oh, I can't believe these people. Their selfish ambition is just, you know, it just, whoa, you know, these people are terrible, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, and then he just goes on and on, and he doesn't say, and now chapter 2, because there was no chapter. He just kept reading, you see. And then he gets to, well, he wouldn't even say verse 3, because there was no verse 3. He just kept reading. But then he would say nothing from selfish ambition. But now Paul's not talking about those people out there. Now he's talking about us. And as the letter goes on, they hear, oh, he knows how the seeds of division have been planted in our church. This would sting. Because that's what those people do. But Paul's basically just telling, don't, don't follow in their footsteps. You see, don't think you're okay just because you're preaching the gospel. That's what they were doing too. Don't be right in the pulpit and wrong in the foyer. Be humble. You see, pride exalts in me, sees me as superior, that what I think is superior, my background, my culture, my education, my view, my way, my maturity in Christ is superior. But this is not the way of humility. Humility sees others as more important, looks out for their interests. That's what Paul says. You see, friends, pride is eager to speak. Humility is eager to listen. Pride is eager to be understood. Humility is eager to understand. Pride will work so that you yield to me. Humility bends so that I can yield to you. Pride looks down on the weaker brother. Humility stoops down with him, walks with him, helps him. Pride divides. Humility unites. And Paul wants the Philippian church who are being attacked by outside opponents to avoid becoming their own worst enemy, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, and to do it through humility. That is Paul's then. If all these things are true, and I know they are, then live lives that are woven together. Live like it's true. And the only way you'll do it is through humility. Humility. The last thing we see is Paul's example. Not Paul's example, our example, sorry. Paul shows us what it looks like to have this kind of humility. Or better yet, he shows us who it looks like to have this kind of humility. It looks like the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. This mind, this mind, the mind he has just been talking about, the mind of unity through humility. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in 
Christ Jesus. You know, there's, a, there's an old hymn, uh, it's like a, an old chorus that begins, we, we are standing on holy ground. Do you know that old song? Well, there's, there, I mean, all of the Bible is holy because all of the Bible are God, is, is God's word to us. But there are some passages when you get to them, you have a real deep sense we're standing on holy ground. And this is one of them. This is one of those texts. Let's just, let me read it again, beginning in verse 6 to verse 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The example we're to follow, Paul here doesn't lift himself up as the example. He points us to Jesus to in this portrait, this beautiful painting of the glory of Jesus. So as, as it were, let's just follow the brush strokes. The first is the deity of Jesus. The deity of Jesus. Look at the first phrase in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. Put very simply, Jesus is profoundly and genuinely and truly divine. He is God. He didn't merely seem to be God or act like God. He is God. The Bible tells us He created all things. The Bible tells us He rules the winds and the waves. The Bible tells us that He forgives sin, that He gives life to the dead, all things that only God can do. Hebrews 1 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And yet at the same time, the Son of God did not consider His position as God something to be used for His own sake, to get, to get, to get. There's not an ounce of selfish ambition in Him, in other words. Look at the rest of verse 6. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Imagine how unique, how holy, how glorious Jesus is to have inexhaustible power at his fingertips and refuse to use it for his own sake. There is no other being in the universe who would do that. Any one of us, given even a moment of power beyond our finite self, would gladly use it for ourselves. But he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. The deity of Jesus, he is God, but he refuses to be a self-serving kind of God. He will not use his power to cling to his power. 
He goes on, the humiliation of Jesus, the next brushstroke. Verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, countless pages have been written about the first three words of verse 7, but emptied himself. I am not going to give you thousands of pages of explanation or even go through a whole host of views that you might take on such a thing. I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. I don't think at all that it means that Jesus ceased to be God in any way when he came to earth. He means that Jesus emptied himself of his rights as God. How did I get that? Well, I didn't get it just by those three, but look at the very next word in your English translation. Emptied himself by. In other words, Paul is going to explain, I think, what he means by emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word form is the same word form as in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, now he empties himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus was, is profoundly and genuinely and truly God, and when he comes, he is profoundly and genuinely and truly human. But not just any human. He's a servant. You see, the Son of God deserves to be served. I mean, have you read the Old Testament? Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with thanksgiving. Serve Him. Serve Him. Serve Him. And Jesus comes as God in the flesh and says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. That is the emptying of the Son of God. And then we go further. As God, He gives commands. Jesus is one who should give commands and expect obedience. And yet look at what verse 8 says. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So instead of giving commands now, Jesus bends to obey His Father's command. You see, without ceasing to be anything that he was, Jesus became something he was not. It was at the incarnation that this union of truly God and truly man come together. And now, In layman's terms, he's no longer giving the orders. He's taking them from his father. He becomes obedient to the point of death. Now, you would think that that's enough. Why does Paul need to say anything else? I mean, becoming obedient to death is a pretty strong statement, isn't it? I mean, how committed are you to obedience? That far? To death? But then Paul adds, even death on a cross. That even is emphatic, and the reason why he gives that is because the word even underlines the shame of the cross. The cross 
the Roman crucifixion was the place for the worst of the worst criminals in the lowest and low among humanity. We don't necessarily get this because we wear crosses around our neck. You see, we put nice outlines of them on our pulpit and we hang them over our baptistry and they're painted on different things and they're things of beauty and things of things like this. I'm not here to talk to you about where the cross is. I'm telling you that basically if a first century Christian were to come in and to see this, if somebody in Roman society were to come in and to see that we are singing about the cross and having crosses hung up, it would be as if in our days you were to walk into the foyer and you look to the left and instead of a large clock, there's a very large and lovely painting of an electric chair. And then when you came in, we had several electric chairs up on the platform so that you could look at them. That kind of shock and horror is what the cross gave to people then. To die there was shameful. It was humiliating. Even death on a cross. And he did it for you. Friend, he did it for you. He humiliated himself. He shamed himself so that you could stand before God unashamed. This is humility. And quite frankly, as we think about the things that we consider humbling or sacrificial, don't they suddenly pale in comparison to this? When someone wants a few hours of your Saturday morning, or you give up a week of vacation to go do mission work, Doesn't it just seem like an even silly idea that that's sacrificial compared to this? We could list a whole host of things that we think are so hard and we forget the Lord Jesus Christ. He was humiliated. The last brushstroke is the exaltation of Jesus Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted. He is given the name above every name. His name is equated with Lord. Now, you see, in the New Testament, the title Lord is reserved for God. And in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew was translated to the Greek, you know when you read the Old Testament, sometimes the word Lord is capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and sometimes it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Well, that all capitals is the covenant name of God. It is Yahweh. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek... 
This same word for Lord is the word that was used for that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In other words, and do you remember what God says in Isaiah 45? He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. No other. And yet here, there will come a day when Jesus will be acknowledged, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. This, friends, is another indication of Jesus' deity. God clearly says in the Old Testament that He will not share His glory with another. And yet here, God the Father is sharing His glory with Jesus. Now, either God lied throughout the Old Testament, or there is something very unique and very particular and very glorious and very God about this Jesus. You can't have it both ways. You can't say God told the truth all throughout the Old Testament, but Jesus isn't God. Jesus, God doesn't share His glory, friends. And this moment, this bowing, this confessing leaves us awestruck. And some actually take it to mean that every single person will be saved. Every single person in the end will be a Christian, what's called universalism. But that's not what's happening here. This is not the cry of faith here in verse 10 so much as it is an acknowledgement of what is true. It is the entire world believing and unbelieving, recognizing Jesus' place as Lord. You see, Paul didn't actually come up with this. This is something Paul learned. I want you to turn backwards to Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. This is what God says through Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved. This is Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Ready? To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Did you notice that there is a split here? There is those who turn to the Lord and are saved, and there are those who come to him and are ashamed. There are those who turn now in this life and are saved and their confession is made with joy. Then there are those who refuse to bow the knee. Isaiah says they are incensed against God. They remain enemies. And on the last day when they bow, when they confess, they will be acknowledging that the punishment they are to endure forever is just and it is right because Jesus is Lord. And that confession will be made in shame 
They will hang their head. And their soul will burn within them for all the times they were told the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And they said, no, thank you. All the times they were offered forgiveness of sin and they responded, I'm not that bad. All the times they heard the gospel and hardened their heart against it. I wonder which of those confessions will be yours. Will you confess now? Or will you only confess it then on the last day? Will your confession be one of joy or of shame? And Paul puts this here, draws our attention to the glorious Christ who left the air of heaven to breathe the dust of earth and dwell among the outcast and the poor, who came to be forsaken and died to take our curse. He points us to him because we are to go and do likewise. We are to have that mind in us. Knowing that just as it happened with Jesus and just as Jesus said in Luke 14, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Christ's humility saved the church. And Paul's saying that our humility will strengthen the church's unity. Let's pray together. Oh God, how I long to see more and more people bend their knee and confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that you have raised him from the dead, having conquered sin and death and hell. Would you work? Would you search our hearts? And know our thoughts and see if the confession we have made is one of genuine joy and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who don't know Jesus. God, I pray that you, by your grace, will save them, that they will not hang their head in shame on the last day, but will go rejoicing. We thank you for these words. We pray you will make us a humble people like our Lord. And in making us humble, you will unify us as we live through days in which we are opposed. For Jesus' sake and in his name we pray. Amen.